In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Um, so we stop for just a moment and uh, to note this, that the inclusion of these political figures here not only helps situate the story in AD 29, that's what it's telling us, it happened in AD 29, but in addition to that, each of these men, Luke lists, they were just bad, wicked folk. They represent the worst of humanity, of inhumane authority, of corruption, greed, justice. And so by telling the story this way, Luke is helping us, uh, wanting us to realize that this was a dark time in the life of Israel. When the light of the world makes its appearance, it's in a particularly dark season of Israel's life. Verse 2, so going back, the priest, during the priesthood of Annas and, and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. It had been nearly 30 years from the time when the angel Gabriel had announced to Zechariah the birth of his son, John the Baptist. And all we know about John in those 30 years was that which was told us in chapter 1, verse 80, where we read, The child John continued to grow, to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So John was a wilderness man in every sense of the word. We read elsewhere that he wore a garment of camel's hair, which was probably made from the, the hide of a camel, necessary to keep him warm during the cold desert nights. He wore a belt of thick leather. Maybe that was a tool belt of a sort. And he subsisted on a diet of locusts and wild honey. So this is a mountain man living a very unrefined, difficult kind of life, a life of seclusion, Certainly, set apart from the social establishment and the religious establishment, almost like a, a desert hermit. And you may know that some of the monks of early Christianity followed John's example and retreated to live a life of seclusion in the desert, though I don't think that is at all what Christ uh, was calling his followers to do. But when it says here, the significant part, when it says that the word of the Lord came to John, it means that God is finally speaking again. The prophetic word is, is finally here again. We have a prophet. 425 years of silence. And God is now ready to speak again to Israel. And these are the things that he said, right, and that he did. Verse 3. John went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism at that time... It, it, was a ceremonial activity that was exclusively, exclusively reserved for non-Jewish people who were converting to Judaism. And what they called that was a proselyte baptism. Gentiles would have to go through this formal ceremonial washing process in order to become part of Israel. So then this would have been extremely surprising to God's people that what is God saying to them? In, in essence, you're no better off than all those dirty, stinking, messy Gentiles. 
Like you need a deep cleansing of your body and your soul and your mind and your spirit. You are no better off than they are. And you must undergo a ritual washing ceremony. Your life needs deep cleansing. Very important that God says that to his chosen people because the moment that any of us, absolutely any of us, begin to think that we are somehow better off or better than the rest of the people whom we live around, ah, um, God will will tell you you need to go take a bath again um, because nothing could be further from the truth. And then this is what we read, verse 4, as it is written, um, John's ministry, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet from Isaiah chapter 40, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all mankind will see the salvation of our God. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the fruit of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Um, I, I, I'm pretty certain that John expected the Messiah would bring the fire. When the king of kings came into this world, he would bring the sword of justice, of retributive justice, and he would you know, bring the fire, he would kindle the fire, and it would burn up all those dirty Gentiles and all of the unrighteous of Israel. And he, I just, I don't think John could have, he couldn't have fathomed, he could not have just, he could not have fathomed the surprise of the gospel that when Messiah comes, he, he, he's, it's not to bring God's judgment, but it is to bear God's judgment on the cross. Like nobody, absolutely nobody, nobody was ready for the surprise of God's grace, as sweet and as rich, it, as rich as it is. I mean, don't you kind of wish that you're hearing the gospel for the very first time, and you could have that aha moment where you hear it, and you, it's like, you're shocked. You're so surprised it sends tingles down your spine. Um, oh, that's, that's what we're asking for, an epiphany. All right, I'll read most of the rest of it now with any, without any more comment. Um, where are we? Ah, well, the crowds, they say, well, what then should we do? Verse 10, John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, well, what should, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and all were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all. I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up into prison. There are three things I'd like to look with you uh, look at with you this morning. They are number one, the preaching of John, John's preaching. Number two, the repentance that he called for, and number three, the way that he prepared. So, totally straight up three point sermon today, which is a rarity for me, as you as you know. But uh, the preaching of John, John's preaching, and what we have here in our passage is a sample of John's preaching. I think this would have been the typical day-after-day kind of sermon he would have declared. What do you think of this sermon? (laughs) How would you characterize it? It is a very harsh word, is it not? It's extremely direct, straightforward, unembellished truth, we might say extremely confrontational. I mean, think he looks at the crowd and he says, you brood of vipers. Like who wants to come out and uh, listen to a sermon that begins that way? If, uh, yeah, if, if I did that, I, I doubt that we would have a lot of people coming back next Sunday. So there was a viral video that hit the internet last week, or maybe it was a couple weeks ago. Did you see this? There was a, a rancher in West Texas who was moving a shed on his property, a dilapidated 10-foot by 5-foot shed that had long needed to be taken, taken out. Anybody see this? And as he went to lift the shed, he was videotaping it with his phone, and there turned out to be like 40 western diamondback rattlesnakes all underneath the, the shed or the outhouse. And I thought to myself, John the Baptist! Because that is exactly... What he, he would have been proud. Um, he says things like, you brood of vipers. You are a nest of serpents. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Very interesting. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verse 7, when Matthew writes about the preaching of John the Baptist, Matthew says that he says those, those exact same words, but he addresses that to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees, right? To the religious establishment, the corrupt religious establishment. But here, it says that he he called everyone in the crowd by this name. I mean, very insulting, humiliating. He says, you're like snakes scrambling in front of of a brush fire that is sweeping through the desert ranch lands in West Texas, uh, which would have been very similar to the dry, arid region. John is preaching in by the Jordan. You're like a whole gang of snakes slithering on your bellies trying to escape the approaching fire. Why would you talk to people like that? Oh, here's how I would uh, characterize it. It's kind of like when you're up in McCall and you are going for the polar bear swim at Royal Family Kids Camp a swim that I have never participated in because I, I can't stand the cold water. But it's that whole, I'm going to jump into Lake McCall, and it's that first moment when you, you hit it, and it's you, that, that initial shock to the system. 
But the people who do it say later on your body acclimatizes to it and it ends up being you know, quite, quite pleasurable and so forth. There is an initial shock to the system. There's a, in John's preaching, there's an insulting shock to the system. But if you're able to get over the initial insult, there are words here to heal you. I do think that these were a people who needed to be insulted. They were a people, as we read later on in the gospel, who prided themselves on their own righteousness, on the rightness of their worship and the way they did their religious ceremonies. They went to the temple. They did all the things the right way. They believed all the things. They were the right people, the right religious people. John confronts them with the fact that they are just the opposite of what they think they are. They are deeply, profoundly affected by sin, and they are headed towards God's judgment, and therefore they are in amazing need, absolute need of the forgiveness of their sins. It's not just a little bit of, uh, it's not, it won't help just to be a little bit better. They need to recognize they are actually horribly twisted from top to bottom. They are, in his words, serpentine through their souls. And they need to be washed from head to toe. So here's what, uh, the way I boil it down. And that is, what would you choose? Would you prefer the kisses of an enemy or the insult of your God? Because sometimes that's exactly what we need. We need God to just, you know, splash that cold water on our face and shock us in order to see our, 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 our situation. There is good news here. God's message to humanity is always the same. The message to sinful men and women like us is God is willing to forgive all your sins. Do you have somebody in your life who... Um, who just is really quick to forgive you, maybe a friend who, uh, it doesn't matter what you do, they, they always um, think that you hang the moon. And they're quick to forget all the mistakes that you've made. Um, God is willing to do that. But you have to understand what an absolute desperate mess you are. So he says, don't rely upon your religious pedigree. Don't say that you, have Ab- you are Abraham's sons and daughters. We would say, don't say that, you know, my parents were a Christian and I got baptized when I was a baby. Don't, no, don't, don't, don't go back there. Say, I am a guilty and hopeless man or woman. And come to God. And when we come to God like that, then we're really ready to discover the mercies that he has for us in Christ. So that's John's preaching. Secondly, let's consider the repentance he called for. Elsewhere in Mark and Luke's Gospels, they summarize John's preaching in these simple words. You remember them. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in verse 11 of our passage today, the people are asking the question, well, how should I repent? What does it mean for me to repent? That sounds like a very religious word. what, What does it mean practically? Give me the rubber meets the road. And John does so right here, verse 11. John uh, answered them, he said, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. What was a tunic? Well, tunic was your, your undergarments. 
It's what would be right up against your skin underneath your robes. The most fundamental piece of clothing, basic clothing that a person uh, might have. So if somebody doesn't have a tunic, they're really in a poor and destitute state. The fact is, a man can only wear one tunic at a time. He doesn't, he doesn't have, need to have two. So he, John says, if you have two tunics and you come across a guy who doesn't even have one, then you are to give him that spare. You're to give it to him. Likewise, if you come across someone who doesn't have enough to eat, what are you supposed to do if you have plenty of food? You're supposed to give that to him. What is the first and greatest commandment? It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And what is the second of these? The second greatest commandment. It is Leviticus 19.18, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's really all he's calling them to do is, is to repent of their, uh, their lack of love. It's a lack of love towards the poor. So in the fourth century, one of the famous early church fathers, as they are called, Basil of Caesarea, a bishop of the city of Caesarea, very influential in the formation of the Nicene Creed, Basil did his very best John the Baptist impersonation when preaching a sermon to his church. And I, I, okay, as I quote this, I recognize he's being hyperbolic. Like sometimes preachers traffic in hyperbole. Jesus was a great preacher. He did a lot of hyperbole. Uh, Basil is doing something of that here. But he says these words. When someone steals a person's clothes, we should call him a thief. Should we not give the same name to the one who could clothe the naked but does not? The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. The coat hanging unused in your closet belongs to those who need it. The unused shoes that are sitting in your house to the one who has no shoes. It belongs to the poor. Now I realize That was a very different cultural and political environment. I promise I am not making any political statement here about what Christians ought to do for public policy and the poor. I just, I simply want to point out that that's language pretty consistent with what John the Baptist is preaching here. And if you go back and read the early Christians, as they, as they challenged each other what it means to live a generous life towards the poor, they talked very much in those kinds of terms. If you have two tunics, give one away. What could be simpler than that? If you have two tunics, give one away to the man who has need. Next off, we have the tax collectors who come to John. And they say, teacher, what should we do? Verse 13. And he gives another very simple, direct answer. He says, do not collect any more than you were required to collect. A little background on this answer. In the first century, the Romans employed... Jewish people, Jewish men, to collect the taxes from the Jews. And because of this, their fellow Jews absolutely hated tax collectors. Tax collectors were aiding and abetting the enemy. It was their tax dollars that were going for the Roman occupation of their homeland. And often, the tax collectors turned out to be very rich. Like Zacchaeus later on in the Gospel of Luke, dude is rich. Why? Because when he would come to you and say that your tax bill is $150, well, in reality, your tax bill is probably only a third of that. (laughs) 
but you got to pay $150 or we will sick the soldiers on you. And the tax collectors ended up pocketing the difference. So they they got very rich on robbing their own fellow countrymen. Notice John's answer to them. He doesn't say, stop collecting taxes altogether. (laughs) I wish he would have said that. We all wish he would have said that. But this is an example, and there are many of them in the Bible, where the collection of taxes for even a bad, corrupt government is legitimized. You got to pay your taxes, is what the Bible says. Um, But John goes on, if you are stealing in any way from anybody then stop it. If you want to be prepared for the Messiah, just take what you're supposed to take and nothing more. The third group who come to John are the soldiers. And these soldiers are likely Jewish soldiers. The Jews in the first century were exempted from serving in the Roman military by virtue of their religious convictions. So you wouldn't have a Jew in a, a, a Roman battalion, or what, that's not the right name for it. Whatever, whatever you called. Anybody? What's well, that? Roman legion, thank you. You wouldn't have a Jew serving in the Roman legion, but you would have kind of local soldiers, or what we would think of as policemen. There were policemen who protected the temple courts, who patrolled the, the streets of Jerusalem. They would carry weapons. They could be pretty rough and tumble bunch. It was likely, those are the soldiers who came to get Jesus on the Mount of Olives um, on, uh, on, on that night. Um, well, what are they supposed to do? Verse 14, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely, but just be content with your pay. How many of us have ever traveled to Mexico and got uh, caught by the policia or the federales down there, even though we weren't going over the speed limit or drinking too much or doing any? Nobody's gone. Nobody's had that experience. You don't want to get pulled over by the policia, Mexicana, because it doesn't matter what you've done. It's going to take a bribe to get you, you know, out of their clutches because you got to, there, there's going to be a shakedown and you got to pay the kickbacks. John says, interestingly, it's okay for a man to carry a sword. It's okay for someone to have a weapon on their, in their holster. It's okay to not be a pacifist. He doesn't tell them to quit their job as soldiering. What he says is, you got to just be content with your own pay. What takes a man in authority with power and makes him into a criminal is discontentment with his own pay. All right, then let's summarize the repentance that John calls for. What is he saying? Here I think he's directing his message to all peoples and all professions. And the repentance he calls for entails a return to what? It entails a return to justice, honesty, and generosity. The Bible has a word for this, and we have used this word a number of times in our service today. It is the word righteousness. He is calling them to return to righteousness. That day-to-day living in which a person conducts all of the relationships in the family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. One other thing we can note about John's repentance, too, is who is he looking to protect? In all of these instances, 
He is looking to protect the vulnerable people in this society, in Israel at that time. And surely that's applicable to us, isn't it? That we have a responsibility to protect the vulnerable in our society, which would include, certainly include the unborn, the disabled, the terminally ill, the poor, the very young, the very old, the voiceless. John is calling them to repent of their sins against the least of these. And it would serve us very well uh, for ourselves to consider if I have any sins against the least of these that God, you know, wants to challenge me about. I was listening to a story that John MacArthur told, a great pastor in Southern California, famous author. He, he was preaching one time. I mean, these guys, the big guys, they preach everywhere, all across the world. Well, this time he was preaching in Kiev, in the Ukraine. Uh, and he talked a little bit about how Ukrainian worship services are very different than American worship services. The, the church was packed. I mean, standing room only. So standing room only that there wasn't even enough room to stand in. And some of the people were standing on, outside the church looking through the windows of the church, standing out in the cold, watching the participation of the service. And as the service went along, these Ukrainian Christians, they almost cycled through in and out of the church. So after one part of the service, somebody would stand up, they'd vacate their seat, and they would shuffle out outside. And then the people outside might shuffle into the standing room, and the standing room might shuffle into the seats. Their worship services include three sermons every Sunday. Get a load of that. Can you imagine having to sit through three of these every Sunday? I wouldn't wish that upon any of, of you, at least if I was doing the preaching. But, uh, and they sing and they pray forever. I mean, these are three and a half hour services. This is not 90 minutes or 75 minutes. They're not, they're not, in a, they're not rushed to get out of there so fast. And at the very end of the service, one of the Ukrainian pastors stood up And he said to the congregation, is there anybody here who wants to repent? (laughs) Is there anyone who wants to repent? I know you you believe in Jesus. That is good. (laughs) But is there anyone here who really wants to repent of their sins? Do you want to repent of any unrighteousness in your life? Uh, Any failure to be just or honest or generous? Uh, MacArthur finished up his story by saying, it's very interesting, Christians in, e- how Christians in Eastern Europe, how they talk about their conversion in terms of not so much, I believe in Jesus, or I, I came, I accepted Jesus in my heart. They never would say that, but they would say, I repented. I repented. Now, I'm not saying that, I mean, the two go together, they go hand in glove. There are two sides of one coin. I repented of my sins, And I embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel. Finally, let's look at the way that John prepared in verses 4 through 6. In ancient times, no king ever arrived into a village without somebody, part of the royal entourage, having gone beforehand and prepared the way. Someone, anyone, I, I, I assume it's probably someone who was designated, would go before out of the royal court 
And they had the responsibility of making all of the preparations and getting everybody in the village ready for the king's arrival. Obviously, John is the one who's given that responsibility. The greatest privilege in the world and the greatest responsibility for he was making way for the arrival of the Messiah, the King of Kings. And that is why Jesus said, of all the people who have been born of woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist, because he is the greatest of the prophets. Here's the question. What does John believe is necessary for the people to be prepared for the Messiah? He gives us this wonderful metaphor, from, and he's taking it from Isaiah chapter 40. And here's what he says. The crooked, everything that is crooked in our society and, and in our own hearts, everything that is crooked, and the word he uses is scolios, from which we get our word scoliosis, everything that is twisted, deceitful, lying, and devious, and manipulative in our hearts, that must be straightened out. I love this one. What do you think is the significance of the valley that has to be filled in. Um, I mean, usually we talk about valleys as just as these places of great sadness and depression. For the king to come and the people to be joyful, all of those valleys in our hearts must be filled in. All of the mountains, he say, says, must be made low. Like every arrogant, haughty, self-aggrandizing, self-exalting, Part of my heart and our society must be humbled and brought down into a poverty of spirit. And what the crooked roads shall be made straight and the rough places plain. That is, all of the hindrances, all the roadblocks, all the boulders, all of the things that might impede Christ coming into your heart. He says, he says remove these. Remove these. I don't want to give off the impression that God's message to us is if you get your life right, then I will save you because that's, we can't get our lives right. We are such a horrible mess. It's impossible to get our lives right. But what do you think? What's the image that is being provided here of God? It's really, I'll put it this way. When we were up in McCall this past summer with some friends of ours, it had been a very long time since we had been away from the city, away from the city lights, and could stare up at, this, at the sky. And uh, their place, their cabin, is a little bit outside of McCall. So some of the city lights from McCall, it's not, dark, it's not um, obscuring the sky. And I looked up there, and I saw the Milky Way. <laughs> and it's probably been, I don't know how long it's been since I've really seen the Milky Way. Milky Way just looks like a highway, doesn't it? It just looks like a, a paved road through the sky. And that is the image. God is creating a highway on which the Messiah would come to her people collectively and individually. It's a, it's a highway of repentance. Let me conclude with this. I think the most perplexing part of John the Baptist's ministry is it's seeming success. Because we read elsewhere, uh, all of Jerusalem and all Judea, everybody was coming out to the Jordan to be baptized by John. I mean, he, he's 
getting a lot of response. You look at it, pastors, we will look at it and say, that, that guy's got a really successful ministry. I mean, everybody's responding. Everybody's getting baptized. This is the big deal. What happens when the Christians first meet after Jesus has died on the cross and raised from the dead, when they first meet in the upper room? Tell me, how many people are found there? It was only 120. You see, John came to prepare a people for the Lord. And what? The best you can get out of that is 120? In other words, you had this huge explosion. And yet it tells us there was a very superficial response to this message. What looked like true commitment that went maybe deep into a person's life actually was anything but. It was very surface level you know, they really weren't ready for Christ. And so here are a few things I'd love for you to take away from the sermon. First, when we pray for our friends and when we talk to our friends who are not yet Christians, um, we, we need to pray that they would be confronted by God and have that cold water splashed on their face in order that they might know their desperate spiritual condition and would have like a true repentance, not a superficial one. Um, how do we know if it's a true repentance? We see it in Luke chapter 18 when the, you have the Pharisee who comes into the temple and he says, God, I thank you. I'm not like all those other bad people. And then you have, um, he says, I fast and I tithe and I do all my real observance. Then you have the tax collector who comes in and beats his breast in sadness and says, God, I'm so bad. Lord, have mercy upon me. Um, that's the whole reason John was so sharp with these people. It was to get them to the point where their only hope was Christ. And that's what we have to pray for them, uh, them and we have to pray for ourselves. Secondly, I, I don't know if you've ever done this for your children, but when you pray for your children to come into the fullness of faith, have you ever tried praying the words of Isaiah 40? So this is a perfect prayer for your kids. Lord, make in my children's hearts straight paths. May every valley, everything that is lacking inside of them, may that be filled in. May every act of pride, mountainous pride, be made low. May every crooked road become straight. May the rough places be made smooth and plain so that, Jesus, you would march right into the center of their life and be their everything. Um, And honestly, the best way to pray that for them is to pray it first for yourself. To pray that God would not allow your heart to remain cold and detached and untouched by the message of the gospel. And then thirdly, and this is truly finally, (laughs) John didn't have a full picture. He thought God would send the Messiah and he would burn down the house immediately. And instead, God sent the Messiah to live the life we were meant to live And to die the death we deserve to die. And this is the good news, my friends. That God has come at infinite cost to himself. He has come as a king to meet with us in mercy. And to dwell with us in indescribable love and grace. John didn't have that full picture. But we do. Let let us cherish it as we come to the table now. Amen.